Welcome to Season 2 of This Is Your Sacred Place. Well, I'm back. I can't believe it's already been a year since we planted Sacred Place. We actually celebrated one year together on June 9th. COVID-19 made our celebrations a bit different from what I expected, but it has been a good year of living into our mission of justice, inclusion, and family. I've embraced my identity as a church planter, and I've shared different parts of my story and the story of Sacred Place over the last year. While it's only been eight months since I started this podcast, I've been sharing our story from our beginning as Sacred Place as we create this new thing which is so needed in our world. The current pandemic has greatly affected my ability to record new episodes for you, my listeners. It has been a huge shift moving all of our ministry online. online. I'm thankful that I have the technical skill set to do this well, but video editing, even for those of us who are well-versed, is a time-consuming endeavor. Squeezing in that work each and every week around parenting a fast-growing toddler who is at home full-time has been a challenge. Curating something meaningful for our online viewers has been harder to do week after week amidst a growing crisis in our world. I have half a dozen podcast episodes outlined and ready to record, but I just couldn't get it done. So yes, it has. So yes, it was all the way back at Easter when you last had a new episode from me. For that, I am sorry. I really enjoy this way of sharing stories, especially my own story. While I cannot promise weekly episodes yet as our world is shifting each day, I will work hard to provide you meaningful episodes during this second season. I'm Matthew. And this is your sacred place. We've just celebrated Pride Sunday at Sacred Place, the fourth Sunday in our Pride Month celebration. I've been sharing my story as an LGBT plus Christian in an effort to boldly proclaim that our sacred place is built for and with the LGBT plus community, which has so often been told that they do not belong in church. We have to be intentional and specific about that welcome for a community which has been so wounded by people proclaiming the name of Christ. This week, I'm so excited to share with you a conversation I had with my friend Matt Nightingale to share his story as a gay pastor, dad, teacher, and even activist. I'm so thankful he agreed to join me to share his story with us. So Matt, tell us a little bit about who you are. My name is Matt Nightingale. I am a teacher full-time, but I am also co-pastor of a progressive American Baptist church in Marin County, California called The Quest. And I have been doing that for just about a year with my best friend of 20 years named Tony Gapistone. That's been a really cool experience. Um, I'm also a certified spiritual director, and I work with an organization here in Santa Rosa called the Journey Center. I also work with an online organization called the Christian Closet. 
that uh, provides mental and spiritual health for LGBTQ people um, by LGBTQ therapists, spiritual directors, and coaches. Uh, and I'm also the very proud dad of four grown children. I have a 25-year-old son and his spouse, Olivia, and then a 22-year-old son named Jacob, who's getting married to Kaisa in September, and then twins who are 18, a boy and a girl, Emily and Zach, who just graduated from high school. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. It's been a busy few months, I'm guessing, having to figure out how that works with kids and graduations and all that stuff. Yeah, it, it's been um, like a really uh, significant time for our family. It's been interesting. I was married to a woman. This is another big part of my story for 23 years. And we have these four children together and all this life together. And we have been uh, divorced for just about four years now. I came out of the closet rather late in life. But we uh, have a really good partnership and we have a lot going on. Like this six months was going to be really significant anyway, because we had a wedding in March and we have another one six months later in September. And then we had two college graduations and two high school graduations. So this was all going to be like really significant and weighty and emotionally powerful. Uh, and then COVID-19 happened. And so it's been like unbelievably uh, more challenging and and not at all what anyone expected, but it has been surprisingly good. And uh, I'm grateful for the ways that we've been able to celebrate, even though it's not anything like we had planned. So yeah, you, you went quickly over the part where you came out <laughs> a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. How was your experience growing up that formed where your life went and then how things changed? I guess that makes sense. Yeah. So I grew up in Northern Indiana. Um, I was 10 years old when I realized I was gay, when I actually had a, a name to describe what was different about me. Um, but it was 1981 in Northern Indiana and I was being raised in a fundamentalist Christian home and Christian school and church. And in my little world, there was really no it, at least from my perspective at the time, there was no way forward into like a healthy uh, coming out or, uh, or living as a gay man. I had no uh, role model for that. I had no positive um, visibility. Um, and so I just stuffed it and hid it. And, um, and I kind of made a promise to myself, even at 10 years old, that I was going to just live with this as a secret the rest of my life. I would do whatever it took to keep this secret. And, you know, as I went through my life, that included dating girls, that included going to a little Christian college, just 45 minutes from my home, where I met uh, the woman who would become my wife. And I just kept thinking, you know, I wasn't trying to be malicious or hurtful. I just, I look back and I just see an earnest young Christian man who was really trying to do what he thought was the right thing to do. And I knew I wanted to be in ministry. I knew I wanted to have a family. I knew I was great with children. And so I think in my mind, it was like, if I can make this work with anybody, here's this great woman who we have a lot in common. We laugh together. We're best of friends. We enjoy each other's company. And I thought maybe, maybe I can make this work, you know? So, so I did, we got married in 1993 
Um, we began having children right away. That's what you do in fundamentalist Christian circles. You know, I was 21 when I got married. Uh, I was 23 when my first child was born. And so, and I was just diving right in, you know, I worked for the Christian college for a while after graduation. And then I started working for Christian schools and then finally into full-time ministry. Um, and yeah, so it, it, that, that's kind of how that whole thing got started. There's a lot more to the story of kind of how I got to where I am now, but that's, that's, that's what led me to be a closeted married man. What was true for me, uh, I mean, I was 27 when I came out, so a little bit later. You, you kind of decide at some point, you were 10, I was probably 13, uh, that this other thing is just not an option. It's just, it's off the table. It's just not an option. So you just keep on trekking along. So like, at what point did you finally stop to figure out, okay, I got something has to be done about this? Yeah, um, I think for me, it, it came in stages. The first one was when I was uh, 30 years old. I had just, uh, my wife had just given birth to our twins and they were six months old. And I was starting to feel just that constant internal struggle of what felt to me like two lives. You know, I had this pretty successful external ministry life, husband, father, all that. And and in a lot of ways, that was a very real life for me. It's not like I was just constantly acting. Um, I, I loved my ministry. I loved my church. I loved my family and the life that we were building together. But on the inside, I knew I was gay. I was always kind of battling these attractions and these feelings Um not only sexual feelings, but like romantic feelings and emotional feelings and, and also the, the constant feeling of hiding and, and feeling like I was putting on a costume every single day. Um, and there were some outlets for that sexuality, usually with pornography. Um, and I didn't like that. I felt like I was cheating. I felt like I was uh, like sinning and, and I just didn't want to be this divided person. So for me, that was kind of a crisis point. Like I cannot continue to live as this divided self. But for me, the solution, at least this first go around, was not to come out to come out, but to come out to get healed and fixed. And so that sent me um, to a really, I don't know, I look back on it with some, with mixed feelings, because of course I repudiate now any like ex-gay conversion therapy, I think it's harmful and damaging and toxic. But at the time, it was the furthest I had ever come out, and I was being honest with people, and I was finding acceptance, and I was finding love and support, or what felt like it at the time. Um, and I, my wife stayed with me. My church allowed me to continue in ministry. You know, there was there was like it, it, in a way, it felt really good at the time because it felt like here we are fighting this evil thing together. Um, and your life got to continue as it was. Things didn't have to change. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and I was so terrified going into that first big confession, that first big coming out in 2001, because I really thought maybe I'm going to lose my wife, my kids, my ministry, my home, all of this. I was terrified. And so when that didn't happen, um, I was so relieved and it gave me all this like continued impetus to, to keep working this and to keep fighting it. Um, and 
and so, yeah, those are complicated times. And we ended up staying together in that marriage for 15 years beyond that initial coming out. And so it was quite a long journey of, I don't know, just over time realizing that it was like three things. Number one, this is not going to change. I'm never going to like not have these feelings. Number two, it would actually be okay for me to claim the identity of a gay man. Uh, in our ex-gay world, in this therapy that I was in, owning that title of like gay identity is is like, you just don't do that. No, 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 no. You are a straight man who struggles with same-sex attraction. And so that was the paradigm I was always living in. And so when I finally was like, oh, I think I'm just another kind of person, <laughs> like a left-handed person or a blue-eyed person or a gay person. Oh, and that took a huge weight off my shoulders. And then the third stage for me was like going, oh, I actually think not only is this never going to change, not only am I just a gay man, but also I think God's okay with it. <laughs> I think that God actually made me this way and could actually bless this. And if I were in a same-sex relationship, he could actually make it beautiful and holy. So that was the, the, the progression, I guess, of kind of how I got from point A to, to where I am now. Which so much of that is, I mean, similar to anyone who has to, whether or not they're part of the LGBT community, but if they come from a conservative Christian background that forbids these things and looks down on uh, LGBT people as sinful, like those are the steps that everyone has to go through. I mean, just theologically of figuring out that it can't be changed, that it's okay to identify that way. And then the, the biblical acceptance of, hey, yeah. Maybe God made people this way and that's that's an okay thing. Maybe this is like actually normal, natural, and healthy for us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is so often not the message that the church sends out about LGBT people. And how do you think it's important for the church to celebrate pride? I think it's really, I think it's important to celebrate pride. And I think it's really important for our churches to have queer visibility and representation on our staffs, in our on our platforms, in our uh, in our expressions of worship. Um, I know coming from a more conservative uh, expression of Christianity, and then going through all of that ex-gay nonsense for all those years, I remember the the roadblocks, to the barriers that I had to the idea of pride, right? Because it's like, well, pride is a sin. How, how do you, how, you, you don't want to celebrate a, a, a vice, you know? Um, but as I've kind of come into this new life and as I've grown in my understanding of reality and God uh, and sexuality, I realize now that, that when we celebrate pride, we're not celebrating the sinful kind of pride. We're celebrating the pride that is the opposite of shame. And we who grew up in the church with this negative, non-affirming language all the time for decades, we oftentimes find ourselves buried in just buckets of shame um, that is difficult to overcome because it's about who we are in our core, you know? And um I think a lot of times um, kind of the hetero world, um, especially if they don't have a lot of connection with the LGBTQ community, they don't understand. And they often kind of accuse us of, um, of making 
of like taking a, a sexual desire or urge and, and making it our identity. And they're like, well, why are you flaunting that? I don't, I don't walk around flaunting my straightness, you know, is something that I've heard a lot from people over the years. And I just think it's a matter of education. I just think it's a matter of kind of holding up a mirror and saying, listen, you may not like be marching in a straight pride parade, but every day, everywhere you go, you are flaunting, quote unquote, your heterosexuality. When you put your arm around your wife in church, when you have a picture of your significant other on your desk at work, when you give your uh, your girlfriend a kiss on the bus, you know, in front of somebody, that is quote unquote, flaunting your, your heterosexuality. It's putting it out in front of people. And I want to say for queer people, we, we're not like looking to, uh, to be abrasive and, and in your face with this most times. I mean, sometimes I think as far as activism goes, that's why we do that. But, um, but just for the normal everyday people in the world, we just want the opportunity to live our lives and love who we love in a way that feels natural for us. We're not trying to assault anybody with, you know, by kissing my boyfriend or something, but, but if, but if they can just realize how heteronormative um, our world is, then they might be able to understand that when we, when we do these kinds of expressions of our sexualities, it's just a normal and healthy thing, just like they are. I mean, it comes down to what is, unfortunately now kind of a loaded word but it is privilege it is mm, yeah there is a, a privilege of being straight and the things that you don't have to consider or think about that every lgbt person does yes um i mean for me when i was f- first starting to date in the middle of seminary which was a big no-no because i was at a more theologically conservative seminary when it comes to this stuff disneyland was like a safe place i could go and i could if i held a boy's hand nobody would notice or care mm. um you know and so you have to find those those ways where you can be normal yeah the average straight person doesn't have to think about that right um and and that is for lack of a better term a privilege to not have to consider those things which makes everything that's going on with our black kindred more meaningful during pride month for me Mm -hmm. that the same things that the lgbt community has struggled with for a long time overlap in so many ways they're very different experiences because I, I think we as LGBT people can can hide who we are in ways right. that, uh, you know, discrimination based on the color of your skin does not uh, work that way. But right. um, so coming from a more conservative background, so a lot of our people at Sacred Place and most of our listeners, I would say, are not to generalize people, but have a longer history of being progressive. How would you talk about helping bridge that gap with conversations and things. I think that's something that I've often been asked and, and work hard to, but I grew up in Texas, which is obviously a red state and conservative, but the United Methodist church is not fundamentalist in many ways. Right. Yes. They're still working through what it means to affirm LGBT Christians. And there are plenty who don't agree with that. I still struggle with a little bit with how to, to talk about bridging that gap conversationally and how to not just be like, oh, you're doing Pride Month, you're, you're way too off the rails. What would you share that people would find meaningful or helpful? I think there's there are so many uh, kind of separate related issues when you're talking about this. Um, yeah. And I think it's really important, like in my particular story and my particular kind of brand of activism, 
uh, online and in the things that I do in guest appearances or when I speak or when I teach or whatever, I have chosen to try to go a really generous route. And I'm not saying that anybody has to do it my way at all. And I've learned a lot about kind of the different approaches to activism that we can take. Uh, and I think they're all important and necessary um, to change things in our world. But for me, because of where I've been and because I have this very large um, like circle of acquaintances and friends on social media and from different ministries that I've worked in over the years. And so I have like all of these large uh, circles of friends and acquaintances who for whatever reason, thank God, they've not entirely written me off, you know, even though I came out loud and proud and, and really kind of freaked a lot of people out. Something about the fact that they knew me and they had had known me for a long time and kind of had watched this progression, I think was helpful. And in every opportunity I have to interact with people around these particular issues, I really try to be like unfailingly kind to never call names, to always assume the best intention, because at least in my circles, um, a lot of the people who are not affirming of queer identities and relationships at this point are doing it not out of hate or out of um, bigotry. They're doing it out of what I perceive to be a very sincere desire to do the right thing and to love God and to follow the, the Bible. And so I think that just at least acknowledging that is a first step to say, listen, I'm not going to call you a hater or a, you know an idiot or a homophobe. I'm going to say, I trust that you are actually doing your best to like follow the scriptures and to love God and to love me according to what you think is true about reality. So I think if we can at least start with an assumption of good intention on the other person that often like opens doors and, and lets walls come down a little bit. And I'm not saying like, I've learned over the years that there is a way that you can be kind of like too kind and too, uh, too generous. If someone is refusing to learn or if they're continuing to enact policies that actually harm people, then I think we do have to become a bit more strident in the way that we deal with it. But I think in general, to say, listen, I, I realize this is new for you. And I realize that you've been taught your whole life one thing about sexuality and about God. And, and so just to give benefit of the doubt is a good beginning point. And you're both coming from a place of faith. And so that's that's such a deeply personal thing that it's that's why people get defensive is yeah. you're, it feels like you're attacking their faith. And so understanding that that's where we're both coming from makes it a little easier to find a place to to meet to talk i think yeah. i think so too yeah and and i do i do think that there's then you know once you can at least like even establish like the way that you're going to have that conversation i think that then there's like so many different places you can go because a lot of what this is all about is not really about sex or or sexuality at all it's really about scripture and that's like so foundational to so many of our uh, expressions of Christianity. So you've got to like, like I finally have gotten to a point with some of my friends with whom I have this disagreement that I just go, you know what, we're never going to agree because we don't look at the words of scripture the same way. You look at this book that's been handed down on high from God, you know, that's perfect and has no errors in it. And I look at it in a very different way. I see it as this like document that has evolved over time, faithful people, writing about their experiences with the divine and you know so we're like seeing the 
even the Bible itself as as very different things. And so I don't know how we can come to an agreement on you know what these particular words mean in this particular passage if we don't even have like a a foundational working definition of what scripture is. But I think that's an important conversation to have too. And and then once you do, if you do come to an agreement on like, this is what the scripture says, and this is what it is. Great. So now let's start talking about Greek words. Now let's start, you know, dive into the Matthew Vines right. book or whatever, and like, or Robert Brownson and start talking about culture and about language and what this means and what it doesn't mean. And so, yeah, I think there's just a lot of, a lot of ways to go, but I think like just foundationally kindness and and always extending the benefit of the doubt will will go a long way because because so often it's about it's about us, right? And I think if people know me and know my heart, then they may disagree with me and they may think that at the end of the day I'm still sinning if I kiss a man, but uh, but that they know my heart and and I think that that kind of relationship is what changes things over time as they watch me be faithful in my life and and in my relationship with God. And, and I think something that I've realized more recently is it's really hard to get to that place where you're dividing what, what my United Methodist Wesleyan upbringing uh, would describe as, you know, the, there's scripture, but then there's tradition and reason and experience. Um, And so often people take tradition as scripture. Um, yeah. and, and that's, the, and you have to kind of, you have to find a way to, to kindly and patiently help split those two apart um, of, you know, what really is scripture and what is tradition and, and why that makes a difference. <laughs> right. Um, and, and I think that, is a good segue into the difficulties uh, for us at Sacred Place and creating this new thing, this new church that is intentionally inclusive from the beginning. All of our people are on board with that because of where we came from, but that's still not quite a normal experience that it makes us feel alone in that effort because of where we are, especially um, where the, maybe the only, that I think there's an Episcopal church that might be affirming technically, in town, but uh, the reason we're planting where we are is there, there's not an inclusive Christian community in this area. So, what challenges have you seen that might be good for all of us to hear about? The quest is an interesting place because Tony and I inherited it after you know it's probably 17, 18 years old now, and a lot of the history of our church was really kind of created and written by one pastor. He was an amazing guy named Joe Everly, is an amazing guy named Joe Everly. And he, but he kind of like single-handedly got us to where we are. And it wasn't really through process. It wasn't really through consensus. It was more like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here. And so I'm just going to kind of act in this way. And the church for the most part went along with it. And it was kind of amazing. Right. But, and, and like, for instance, he, there was a, a lesbian who was leading worship and everyone knew that she was gay and that was cool, but they never, they never um, made a point of it. They never taught about it or they just allowed it to happen. Right. And so the, I think that when I was hired as first the worship leader and then the pastor, 
uh, I think there were some people with these questions like, well, we've never even really talked about this. You know, I mean, the Bible does seem to say this. Right. So so there was a little uh, just questioning for good reason, because they had never been through any kind of a process of, of coming to an affirming position. Right. Officially. It's, it's what I call accidentally inclusive. Like, yeah. You have to do that work to be intentional about being inclusive and understand why you are. Mm -hmm. And and like, I don't, I'm so thankful that they paved the way. Like I could never have even been hired as the worship leader were it not for Patty before me and were it not for Joe's work. Right. But, but it has been a little, I mean, just a little challenging, like to try to go, okay, how now do we, how do we bring people up to speed about why we are this way? Um, Because we, we do think that it's really important to have uh, representation to be to be blatantly affirming um, you know we wanted to be listed on churchclarity.com as a, a verified clear affirming church and we are and that's great but again like teaching our people why that's important and then some of them needing to go like well what about the bible and what about uh, what Paul seems to say here or Leviticus or Sodom and Gomorrah you know and so we do have to kind of walk people through and I think there's also sometimes I don't know if you experience this but our church is still mostly straight. Uh, there's like a couple gay couples, a couple gay single guys, and me. And so it's like like seven of us maybe on a, if we're all there at once. <laughs> and so I think that um, there is maybe a little bit more pressure. I, I put pressure on myself to like to be a good example, to be a good representative, to all of these things. But then I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like, am I being too gay? Am I talking about it too much? Am I because gay as important as it is and as central to our to my identity it's not all i am right i want to talk about bible passages that have nothing to do with sexuality too and i want to i want to pastor and care and love and serve and teach and preach and all those things that we are called as ministers to do and sometimes i feel like the the weight of it i'm lucky because tony is straight and he's like he's sometimes louder and prouder than i am as an ally you know but i uh i sometimes do kind of feel almost like if it comes up, I'm almost like, oh my gosh, no, we don't have to talk about that now. Like we don't have to always be talking about gay stuff. At the same time, I'm thrilled that we are and I'm grateful for the the opportunity. But it's this kind of, I feel a little divided sometimes. Like, and I really love it when other people bring it up. I love that because it it uh elevates the importance of it without me being the token gay. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's that's part of why I like to do Pride Month is because it gives us permission to have these four weeks of this is what we're talking about and why we're talking about it. We still have to be intentional in our welcome and inclusion of the LGBT community yeah. in ways that so many other communities don't need because there are churches that have welcomed other communities. Yeah, The LGBT community is, is, is one that has been blanketly excluded from church in so many ways, which which is one of the reasons I think one of the things we have to talk about is that for our churches, some people get uncomfortable when we talk too much about our inclusion of LGBT people. Um, But we have to, because it's the one group that has been told they didn't belong in church by everyone. And and this gets to the, the conversations around singling out a group of people and being problematic. But I don't know about you, but I mean, from my experience, if I had, if I had heard of a church that was like any of our churches, that would have changed things a lot mm. for me. Mm-hmm. You know, so if, if I could go back and tell my teenage self, hey, there are churches that will accept you. What's the one thing that you would say to an LGBT young person 
who is in a place where they don't feel like there's a place of inclusion for them. I guess I would just say that you're not alone. I would say that God made you beautifully as you are and that there are there are places and spaces and faithful Christian people who will acknowledge this part of your identity, who will love you and support you and celebrate you. We will let you serve and sing and lead. We will marry you and your partner someday. We we absolutely believe that you are equal in every regard to straight people. I wish more kids could see and hear and experience that. I think it's kind of a beautiful time in the world because it's more than ever before, at least in the United States, you know, and we can finally be married and we're having these cool Supreme Court decisions in our favor. And and most of the world goes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Of course. What, what took us so long? You know, so I do think these are good times. But I have to say, like, uh, I mean, there's still so many evangelical kids in the closet, so many Um just a couple months ago on Twitter, this kid followed me. He's 19 years old, totally anonymous Twitter. Uh, and he, I, I, I don't know, we started chatting and direct messaging and he heard about my story, watched my TED talk and all this and was like, wow, I, you know, he just wanted them needed support. So I reached out to, you know, the faithfully LGBT hashtag on Twitter and said, what would you tell this kid? And it was just beautiful like the love and support that came pouring in all over twitter all over this kid and he he's still closeted he doesn't know what he's going to do but he you know i i look at him with hope and and i know that there's encouragement and community for him i know that there is but right now he's in this dark place of like i don't know i don't know i can't imagine but i think he at least knows that he's not alone and that other people will be here to cheer for him and support him and encourage him and give him resources and and what what he needs you know but there are so many still so many still in the closet in evangelical churches. I mean, I can't remember what it was. There was some, there was a clip from somewhere of, uh, someone who was closeted talking about, uh, how much, you know, the church doesn't have a place for them. Uh, and I just keep like screaming at the TV or at the community monitor. If they only knew we existed, like inclusive Christianity is still so small compared to, the voices that are louder than ours. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. It's not that it's not that they're larger than us. I feel like there's as many progressive and inclusive Christians as there are non, but it's just that evangelicals, non-affirming evangelicals specifically have an outsized voice in our community, in our culture. They do. They, they, when people think Christians in America, they think Jerry Falwell, they think, you know, whatever, the, the Baptists and people who are not affirming. And, and that's unfortunate because that is not the only uh, actual expression of Christianity in our world today. Uh, there's so many more affirming, inclusive, progressive Christians, but, but we get written off as like not real Christians by the media and by, by evangelicals. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. A lot of it is about communication, you know, and I have, there are signs of hope. I don't know if, I mean, I know you see them too. Queer Eye, right. And the the great uh, episodes that have clergy and Christian people in them. I love that because it, for some people, their minds are blown. They're like, what? You can be a pastor and gay. (laughs) And we're like, yes. And, and honestly, like a lot of mainline churches have known this for a long, long time. And people, people have been gay and Christian for generations. I look at churches like the MCC church. I look at the Episcopal church. I look at some Presbyterian and Lutheran churches, UCC, Disciples of Christ. 
you know, some people have been doing this for a long time. Yes. And so it's good for us to, to see that and acknowledge it. Um, but I do think we are, in some ways, those of us who are from evangelicalism are pioneering in a new way and on a new front, you know, because, because most of our uh, past denominations or whatever are, are not affirming. And so we are having to kind of like figure out how to do this, especially if we want to hold on to some of those more evangelical expressions of Christianity that, that a lot of us love and grew up with. There, there is a moderate evangelicalism that does exist in this country. It just doesn't have uh, prominence or, an, or something definable that helps people know that it exists. I mean, right. it's true. And I have found that some, for, for some of these moderate evangelical uh, denominations or expressions, this seems to be a dividing line. And it's really that it's really uh, discouraging to me sometimes because you you might have a church now that's like Black Lives Matter. Yes, uh, we've been ordaining women for 50 years. Yes. And no on the gays. <laughs> like that's right. I mean, which is still the story of the United Methodist Church. Yeah, right? exactly. And my former church, the Evangelical Covenant yeah. Church that I came from. Right. They're, they're so cool and progressive in many ways. But on this one, boom, they, they just can't get there. And it's really Which honestly, fun. that was my se my seminary experience too. I'm like, so all these things you're talking about how to engage scripture, you just don't apply them in this one area, um, and and that's a problem. I know. Um, yeah, because I, I mean, if you want to get serious about the scripture, it, it does seem to say some things about women in ministry and leadership too, doesn't it? Right. I mean, there's some pretty bold statements that Paul made about women keeping silent in church, things like that. Well, guess what? We found a way to get around those passages because we understood the context of what was going on yes yes and and honestly a lot of the same hermeneutical decisions can be made in relationship to mm -hmm. the the, mm -hmm. the passages on the same gender love so yeah, yeah it's it's frustrating yeah. sometimes it is where do you find hope for the church amidst all these things especially i mean covid19 is an interesting time for for the church and in our country i i had, I had hoped that our turning inward into our homes would cause us to see that we're more alike than we are different. But I, I have seen that the opposite is actually happening. Entrenchment into where people already were has kind of become the reality of things. So where do you find hope uh, amidst all that is right now? I think the thing that I keep coming back to to give me hope is relationships with other beautiful people creating God's image who are um, LGBTQ, for instance, you know, like I, I have several groups that I run and, um, and I have this kind of tradition or habit at the end of the groups, just to kind of look at all these beautiful people on my zoom screen and acknowledge that I see the living God in them and in their relationships and in their stories and in their lives. And that actually grows my faith. And it, it reminds me that God is in all these places that I used to be told God couldn't be. So I think something about kind of relationships and seeing the fruit of the spirit in Christian people brings me hope and life. And I do think that as we look at our world, as dark as it feels sometimes, there are breakthroughs. There are good good things happening. I believe that our world is in a better place today than it was 10 years ago or 50 years ago. And I, I see even in this current um, kind of crisis around racial justice, I see bright spots. I see people that I never would have imagined 
10 years ago using a Black Lives Matter hashtag or whatever, but they're like 10 months ago. So okay, yeah, that's a good point. But they're like waking up. Like there's, there are breakthroughs happening, you know? And, and that brings me hope to, to see kind of the trajectory, to see that there's more justice today than there was, I don't know, two years ago, more people waking up to racial injustice, more people waking up to LGBTQ inclusion. Um, that brings me hope because I can actually point to people and, and say, look, there's change happening. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It is a journey. And I think one of the things that we who have been affirming, we have to remember that it took us a while to get where we are and we have to have patience with others to help them get to where we hope they will be, Yeah, which is, is why we share our stories because enough stories help reframe your vision of reality of seeing where there is hope, where there is love and where there is Christ in so many ways. I often tell people like one of the big um, convincing things for me, because I, I mean, I wrestled with this for years. Uh, talk about taking a long time to kind of get to this point. Um, and a lot of it was my situation. I was married. I didn't want to blow up my family. I had no desire to hurt anybody. So it was very complicated. But one of the things that helped me kind of get to a place of peace and acceptance of my sexuality as a good gift from God was um, was just getting to know queer Christians and seeing the fruit of the Spirit in them. I could not deny that I was seeing evidence of love, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faith. And, and I would ask myself, where does the fruit of the Spirit come from? Oh, yeah the Holy Spirit, you know, and, and just over time, kind of the weight of this evidence of, of looking at faithful Christian queer people going, I see the spirits alive and well in them, and I can't deny it anymore. So that was one of the kind of turning points for me. And so that's what I pray for people to see the visible evidence of the fruit of the spirit in queer people. If, if we could just do that, <laughs> we might be a little better off. Yeah. I mean, we mess up sometimes, so <laughs> we're in need of grace yeah. and mercy. Just There's still grace, else, yeah. But, but yeah, that's a that's a good hope and prayer, you know, that we would reflect Christ and that people would see Christ in us. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us for our little podcast here. Our stories matter. And during this month, we especially have to lift up the stories of those who are queer. And I thank you for sharing. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you again, Matt, for joining me for this first episode of the second season of This Is Your Sacred Place. I hope to invite more of my friends to share their stories with us in the coming weeks and months as we work to increase justice, proclaim inclusion, and bring together the family of God. I'll see you soon for the next episode of This Is Your Sacred Place. Ah!